church, and they're going to head out these doors to your right. And I want to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6. We are continuing our series in the minor prophet Zechariah. He's the second to the last of the minor prophets, right? You know, two, two books from Matthew, if you're looking for that place in your Bible. Um, so, when we sing, come and make all things new. And when we're honest about uh, our, our longing for God to restore what's broken in the world, what's, what's, what's broken in us, that's called a lament. And it's a, it's, a, it's a valid prayer. It's a good prayer. God invites that prayer. Uh, and it's just our way of agreeing with the heavens that are you know, looking forward to the day when God comes and indeed makes all things new. And at the same time, though, when we're honest, you know, we're not so much lamenting that this world is not the way that God designed it to be. We're lamenting that it's not the way I designed it to be. It's not the way I want it to be. It's not conforming with my plans and my will and, and so on. And, and so the Bible comes to us with these immeasurable words of comfort and disruption, comforting us. Look, this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's going to be. And God has a plan to renew all things. At the same time, look, we have to stop building the kingdom self and begin building the kingdom of God. So, Let's look at the last of the prophet's eight visions. Um, this is the eighth in a series of visions that the prophet received. And so let's stand in honor of God's word as we see what God showed Zechariah. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. And the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country, have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us enough to reveal your word to us. Thank you for showing us Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is, as I said, uh, meant to be received in, in a broader context of eight total visions, uh, and, and of course the broader context of the entire letter itself, but um, we're going to just look at the eighth vision in particular. And, you know, t 
just to be candid, this is one of those visions where you go, oh wow, that's really interesting to read about, to hear about. Uh, you've got horses and chariots and mountains and winds and stuff like that. And, and it just sort of, I mean, isn't this kind of vision just what's, what, what epitomizes the minor prophets where it's like kind of crazy, a little bizarre, but, but just enough that we go, yeah, that's about right for the prophets, but I have no idea what it's talking about. Um, one commentator, we were, we were joking on our uh, trip to, to Louisville. On the way there, I was reading this, uh, this commentator. L- listen to this. This is kind of where you just kind of go, huh? If we regard the winds that Zechariah is talking about, the four winds of heaven, if we regard the winds as a virtual semantic zero, we find that they are in some way under the aegis, A-E-G-I-S, aegis of God, and like their symbolic counterparts, are forces active in the world. Of course, amen, right? Sure, I'm totally tracking with that. I don't even know what aegis means. I had to look up the word aegis. Maybe your vocabulary is better. It means protection of God, God's sovereign over all things. And yeah, so the passage does declare that, but it's just sort of like, huh? The winds as a virtual semantic zero. I don't know. Um, so just, you know, this is just one of those places where you go, I don't get the prophets. Let's just move on. Let's get to the gospels and, you know, but don't do that. Don't do that. This isn't, honestly, it's, it's not that crazy. Let's just, let's, let's break it down. Let's look at what always means the same thing, no matter where you go in the Bible. And even outside the Bible, things like mountains. All right, so you got four chariots and Zechariah lifts up his eyes and he sees these four chariots come out from between two mountains. And the mountains are made of bronze. So everything about this this vision is meant to show us a picture of God's power and his strength. Um, Everywhere you go in the Bible and you encounter a mountain, you should should go encounter with God. That's, That's what a mountain means. And that's not crazy talk. Every religion, it seems, in all of their holy writings refer to a mountain as a place to go up to, to ascend to being in the presence of God. I don't care if you've never had uh, any understanding of what this book is about. You've never been exposed to the Bible. You have no idea what Christianity is. Even in unreached nations, which need to be reached, by the way, even in unreached nations, even in their sacred writings, there is something about the image of God in a man or a woman that understands that God is other. We are not like him. Even if it's gods or some divine power or whatever, there's just this constant refrain in all of the religious writings about going up to the high places to ascend to meet with God. That's why temples are always built on top of mountains. That's why holy places are always higher up than the other places and, and so on and so on. So when you see mountains in the Bible, you go, oh, God's presence, meeting with God. And here you've got two mountains, like double God's presence, uh, really, really prominent presence of God. And the chariots are coming out from the Lord's presence. Um, These two mountains create a pass uh, that 
create like Rockfish Gap. Once you go out the doors after this worship service and you look over toward uh, Afton Mountain, if you lift up your eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? It comes from Rockfish Gap. Uh, the p- people have always looked up to the holy places uh, to meet with God. And so when you see that pass, that gap, it's two mountains that form this access. And so what you're seeing here is access to God. And these chariots are coming out from presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And they're coming out from God's presence from between these two mountains. On this side, we are not in God's immediate presence. On the other side of those mountains is God's presence. And there's a gateway, a pass, a rockfish gap that can lead us into God's presence. But there's a problem. What are the mountains made of? These are not ordinary mountains. These are metal mountains. And they are not just uh, any old metal. Uh, they're not, it's not a common metal. But what's interesting is that it's also not a valuable metal. It's, they're not mountains of gold. They're not mountains of silver. This is not, the, the point is not to demonstrate God's riches. It's not to demonstrate his opulence. Uh, instead, these mountains are made of bronze. Bronze is an alloy. Uh, bronze is what happens when you take copper and mix it with tin and you heat it up and those two metals be, uh, form a mixture. And what happens at the end is now you have a metal that's stronger than either of the first two original metals. And bronze... Uh, was discovered, or, or the, the capacity to make that alloy was developed in like 2500 BC, and we've devoted an entire age of humanity to the Bronze Age because the point of bronze is that when you have one kingdom who has bronze and another kingdom doesn't have bronze, or even when you've got two kingdoms at war with each other, the one who has the most bronze wins. The one who has bronze weaponry the one who has bronze armor, the one who has bronze chariots. Guess who wins? The one with the most bronze. And here you have two mountains made of bronze. And if you have a bronze mountain, if you have a bronze gate, guess what? That gate is absolutely impregnable. There is nothing, there is no one, no way that a kingdom protected by bronze mountains could ever be susceptible to attack. It is absolutely invulnerable, absolutely unconquerable. Anyone who tries to attack a mountain of bronze will be smoted on that metal mountain. And that's the lesson. It's, not, it's, it's really not tricky symbolism. Bronze means strength. Get two bronze mountains. You're not getting through that gate. We're on the outside. God's presence is on the other side. Anybody who's not entitled to God's presence is not getting into God's presence. And out of that gap, out of the gap between those two bronze mountains, four chariots come. What do we know about chariots? Uh, uh, on the front of your bulletin, th- this was made of gold, by the way, uh, this statue, uh, and it's Persian. You know, So we're reading... Zechariah, and Zechariah ministered in uh, this, this prophecy, this vision was revealed to Zechariah in the year 520, uh, and Zechariah ministered at a time when Israel was ruled by the Persians, and we're told that in verse 1, chapter 1, by King Darius. This is a Persian chariot from roughly the same time period. 
And you see it dominates, you know, it's high up, the wheels are huge, and if you are standing in front of a chariot, guess what happens to your heart if you're a soldier or an infantryman? It turns to wax. You cower in fear because a chariot is an ancient Near Eastern armored tank. A chariot is how an army wins a war. The one with the most chariots, the one with the most bronze, they win. And these are led by these teams of horses. Uh, it's at least two, probably four, you know, based on models of chariots like the one you see on, on the bulletin. And these horses, we're told in verses 3 and 7, are, are particularly strong horses. They're powerful horses. So this whole message, this whole vision is reminding us again that God has the power. God has the strength. He is unconquerable. He is invincible. These horses and chariots are going out to the four winds of heaven. Um, they're not impeded by anything. They are not, uh, they're not even impeded by roads. They're not, they don't need paths. They go out in whatever direction they want. They have no opposition. They have no hindrance. There's nothing that can be an obstacle to them. They have complete autonomy and nothing can thwart them. Uh, we're told that, okay, you've got the black and the white uh, horse-drawn chariots, where do they go? They go north. Uh, and then you get the dappled horse-drawn chariots, they go south. Uh, what, by the way, happened to east and west? What, where, did the red, where did the red horse-drawn chariot go? Um, these are the kinds of questions that the commentators get wrapped around the axle about. The point of this passage, though, is not about getting your cartography right and making sure we've got all the points of the compass you know, nailed down. What we see is that God is ministering and speaking words of comfort to his people, people who have been terrorized and dominated by powers from the north and from the south for centuries. Right now, Zechariah, as I said, is ministering in, uh, in Jerusalem. He and the rest of the uh, Jewish exiles have returned uh, from exile, and they are now back in just a, a heap of rubble. Um, they are in what would be uh, an ancient version of Aleppo. And their, their task is to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, uh, and they're under, as I said, Persian dominance. Before that, per Persia, by the way, comes from the north. Before that, in 586 BC, about 60 years prior to when Zechariah was ministering, the Babylonians had come down and they had defeated the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, surrounded Jerusalem, laid siege to its walls, and in 586, Jerusalem fell. Israel was deported to all points of Babylonian compass from the north, again from the north. Before, Bab before Persia, there was Babylon. Before Babylon, there was Assyria. And back in 722 BC, just kind of moving progressively backward in time, the Assyrians had come down. Where? From the north. And had laid siege to the northern kingdom. That's when Israel fell. And so over and over and over again, Israel is dominated from kingdoms in the north. Oh, and by the way, even further back, who is Israel dominated by? In the south? Egypt. So, no, uh, <laughs> Zechariah's concern is not to make sure that our tidy obsession with details gets met. His concern, God's concern, is very pastoral. He's very concerned that God's people know that they are protected. 
that God is sovereign and he's using his power and his strength to address the threat and to address the enemies uh, of Israel who had been coming down from the north for centuries and from the south uh, as well. Um, I don't know if you remember last week when we were talking about the powers of, of idols, modern day and ancient idols in our lives. Uh, in Psalm 115, it talks about how their idols are silver and gold and the work of human hands and those who make them become like them, right? That principle that we become like what we worship, whatever our hearts are set upon, that's going to start to rule us and control our thinking and our words and our actions and our assumptions. And so the question is, what are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? But that same psalm reminds us, in contrast to the idols that are lifeless and dumb and mute and can't do anything, um, and that same psalm begins with this incredible pronouncement, why should the nations like Persia and Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, why should the nations say, where is their God? You know, sort of mocking Israel. And the reply from all of those who are faithful and who believe that God is on his throne and that he exists uh, behind an impregnable, unconquerable kingdom, we say that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. This vision is to remind God's people that God has the power and the strength to do all that he pleases. And he has bronze mountains, and he has strong horses, and he has powerful chariots, and he has no resistance. <laughs> Nothing can stop him. And he tells these chariots, go and patrol the earth. Um, I think it's really incredible when you see in verse 7, these strong horses come out, and they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And the angel gives them this, uh, this bid to go, patrol the earth, and so they they patrol the earth. You see that command, go, you know, that real forceful, you know, announcement, go, patrol the earth. That, that happens 12 times in the last three visions of the eight visions that Zechariah has, um, which lends a lot of activity and urgency uh, to, to uh, these visions. And here you've got these, uh, these horses that are impatient to get going. Um, we were, as I said, in Louisville for this together for the gospel conference. Uh, it wrapped up Friday at five o'clock. We'd heard some incredible um, preachers and, and, uh, and sermons from the likes of John Piper and Ligon Duncan and Matt Chandler and um, uh, just on and on it goes. Uh, wonderful time together to worship. And then we get in the car and we head home. And, uh, and I'm realizing that we're, oh, and actually we are in uh, Kentucky. There's horses everywhere um, that, that we were, gosh, within 20 minutes, I guess, of Churchill Downs. They're going to run the Kentucky Derby, right, in a couple of weeks, May 5th. So I wore my Kentucky Derby outfit uh, in honor of that. So. Um, and at the Kentucky Derby, in any horse race, uh, you've, you've probably seen one or two at least, uh, you know that they lead those horses to that starting gate. And at one of the Triple Crown events, like, like the Kentucky Derby, these are the best of the best. These are 20 of the fastest, strongest horses in the world. Horses are coming from all points of the compass. And they lead these thoroughbreds that have been 
bred and trained to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to run. They lead them into this corral um, where they are hemmed in and they cannot move and the jockeys are trying to keep these horses still and all they want to do is just take off. And you've got uh, tense horses uh, and, and you've got tense jockeys that are waiting for the starting gun in their colorful jerseys and you've got this crowd of thousands at Churchill Downs, uh, tense women in their you know big beautiful hats and you've got tense men in their vineyard vines seersucker coats and you've got tense people everywhere waiting for that that pistol to start and bam and it goes off and the gates fly open and the horses run and they're so impatient they just want to run that's what they're bred to do that's what everybody's waiting for let me ask you a question Are you impatient for God's plan to be realized in this world? Yeah, you are. I am and you are. And we we should be. Because we are eager for this world, to this broken, bruised, pain-soaked world to be healed. We're impatient for that. Now let me ask you something else. Do you think God's impatient for that? We, who are, if anything, on our best days, just a jumble of contradictory feelings and thoughts and values, what about the one whose will is always holy, always good, always pure? How impatient must he be? In the best sense of the word. Don't you think he is far more eager than any of us to see this world healed? Don't you believe that he longs for that day like the hosts of heaven do, like the horses of heaven do, as we see here this impatience? Lord, how long, right? In the best sense of that lament, how long? And God has a plan. He is using all of his power and all of his strength and his resources to bring that plan to fruition. And he looks forward with longing for that day. Much more than any of us do. Do not doubt God's eagerness to bring rest to this world. To bring rest to your world. When we look at the end of this vision, we see this pronouncement. The only time that the angel cries out, by the way, in verse 8, he cried to me, Behold, those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. It's this picture of rest that's finally coming to all of the activity that's been building for these eight visions. All of the activity, by the way, uh, in Louisville, um, that's begun already. It's uh, two weeks that lead up to the Kentucky Derby, I'm told. And as we were leaving, as we were leaving Louisville that Friday afternoon, and I'm, you know, looking around at these beautiful green rolling hills and these enormous horse barns and these horse farms and just horses and horses and horses. I'm like, wow, that's a lot of horses. 
And then we got into some conversation or I was looking at my phone and catching up on email or something like that. And 20 minutes later, I look back up and out the window and I notice again, still a lot of horses. Where are the, where are the cows? When, where, did they, where do they keep the cows? There's all, all these are horses. And, you know, back to a conversation or something to distract me. I think another half an hour went by. We're like an hour outside of Louisville, and I look out the windows again. There's still horses everywhere. Where are the cows? I was so disoriented because I'm just used to seeing cows. I'm just a hayseed from the Shenandoah Valley where we got cows and cows and more cows, and you drive up and down 81, and guess what you see? Because all of Louisville, it seems, and all, you know, for an hour surrounding it, uh, is just this obsession with horses and the Kentucky Derby. And this buildup, this, this, you know, this slow buildup that takes a year, every year, they're going to run the 144th Run for the Roses, May 5th, and it just builds and builds, and then two weeks before the race, they start all these other parties and races, and they have the beauty contest and all these other races and people are so excited for May 5th to come and it begins in the morning and there's a race and it's international TV. Everybody dresses up. Everybody's got millions of dollars on the line and then they start, that pistol finally starts and all those impatient horses and all those impatient jockeys and men and women and everybody who's so impatient, they finally run and you know how long the race takes? Two minutes. been called the greatest two minutes in sports. And at the end of two minutes, rest. In the Kentucky Derby, actually, it's a lot of disappointment. It's the end of a lot of energy and the expulsion of a lot of adrenaline as people tear up their betting tickets. They realize, I lost way too much money. And as they stumble home after too many mint juleps, uh, and, and so on. And it's just, they're done. But that is, in a sense, the end of the activity that you see here in Zechariah 2. The horses are done running. And there's rest. And the winds have stopped blowing. And the chariots have stopped coming and going. And the horses have stopped clamoring. And the angels have stopped clamoring out because this global picture of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven and coming to a final conclusion, a rest. And little Israel is reminded that God has a plan for His people, that they may feel insignificant and helpless, but God is keeping them, as Zechariah said earlier, as the apple of His eye. Whoever touches you, touches the apple of my eye. And Zechariah's audience would have been deeply encouraged by this vision. All nations are being patrolled and governed on behalf of God's people. He is the Lord of all the earth. And he is in charge. As I said, there's a lot of activity going on here. This is the eighth of all these visions that are leading up to this crescendo and this incredible bursting forth, go, you know, and patrol the nations. And then finally, this rest. The, the visions began, by the way, with four horses. Uh, the first vision was these, the, the horses and the myrtle trees. They had different colors and stuff. And then the, the visions continue like an eight-verse hymn all leading up to this, 
this climax. And Joyce Baldwin says that all eight visions are meant to be interpreted as one whole for each contributes to the total picture of the role of Israel in the new era about to dawn, right? This new uh, creation, this new heaven and new earth when everything is at rest again, as it should be. These visions, I don't have time to, to rehearse them with you. You can go back and read them. It doesn't, wouldn't take you long, but over and over and over again, it's this promise that God is going to rule over the nations. He'll even bring the nations to worship him, but he's going to humble and uh, strike down those who are opposed to him. And now in this last vision, God's spirit is at rest in the north, the epicenter of the political turmoil in the ancient Near East, where Assyria and Babylon and Persia have taken turns imagining themselves to be gods. But God reigns over all things, over all nations, even powerful ones, even enemy ones, and God is exalted over them, and all nations will come to him. And so, by the way, Zechariah, first vision, eighth vision, isn't the only place where we run into four horses of different colors. Do you remember in Revelation? Remember the seals? Revelation's got all these different series, and it's really compelling and fascinating. And you get to chapter 6, and the seals start to be broken. The seven seals. And the first seal is opened, and the four living creatures say with a loud voice, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider has a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. The second seal is a red horse who rides out to make war on those who are opposed to God. The third seal is a black horse, and it you know, brings worldwide inflation to those who are not you know, looking out for justice and for the poor. And the fourth seal is broken, and a pale horse rides forward, bringing famine and death again to those who are opposed to God's plan and his kingdom. Four horses. And they're riding forth to accomplish God's great plan to bring rest to a broken, rebellious planet. And then you get to the seventh seal, and you know what's really remarkable? This blew me away. I didn't see this until this week. You get to the seventh seal in Revelation chapter 8, and when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. Rest. There's a message here. It has continuity. And there's this beautiful story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, of God's plan to bring rest to a broken world, to our world, even our little world, our little universe that consumes us, and we get so bent out of shape about how everything's going and what's going on in the world and in my world, but God's Spirit will be at rest in the world. I like how... One commentator put it, the horses of Zechariah's vision ride forth today, but the God who dwells between the mountains of bronze is still sovereign over human events. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That we worship a God who's strong and powerful and sovereign, who, whose gateway is through two mountains of bronze, so to speak. That nothing can stand before him. He will accomplish his purposes and all of his holy will. God is active in this world. He does whatever he pleases. He has a plan, and he is pursuing that plan to its appointed ends, and he is using 
all of the disturbances in our lives to get to that end, even when things take more time and cost more money and are more complicated, our little triumvirate of life in a broken world. His activity in this world, in your world, and my world is designed to effect rest. It's purposeful, and it's designed to accomplish the end of His plan. And all that is happening all around us and in us are the necessary precursors to God getting to that end. But you and I, you know, if we are honest with ourselves, we wonder why life is so hard, right? We wonder why life is full of confusion and and frustration. And we wonder why everything seems cursed. And, you know, back to that lament at the beginning. There's a part of us that laments the brokenness in this world because we recognize that it is not aligned with God's purposes, God's plan, the kingdom of God. But don't you recognize? Can't we be honest and recognize inside of us that there is another dark side to our lament, to our question of why, that has nothing to do with God's kingdom, God's plan, God's purposes, and everything to do with my plans, my purposes, and my kingdom. Christ came to defeat that rebel within us. He came to conquer you. He came to conquer me. We were his enemies. The glory of the gospel is that God conquered us. And when somebody prays and receives Jesus into their heart, you know, says the sinner's prayer, whatever way you want to describe that, however, whatever happened at that moment when somebody turns from following this world to starting to follow Jesus, it's fundamentally the white flag of surrender where we say, you win and I've lost. I surrender. It's no more about my kingdom. It's your kingdom come. Your will be done. The Lord's prayer is a sinner's prayer. Acknowledging Christ's lordship in in our lives. You know, over and over again, there's this warning throughout Scripture. Don't don't build your own kingdom. Don't break covenant with your creator. And the law comes to God's people, and there are consequences to breaking the, the law. Uh, in Deuteronomy 28, it says that the Lord will send on you curses and confusion and frustration and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. Dehydrated water. <laughs> the assumption of most people, and when we go back to our default uh, mode of doing life, our assumption is that we can march in and out of God's presence anytime we want. And the world believes that God waits on us, and that He's obliged to receive us, and that we are entitled to go into His presence anytime we want, receive all the gifts that we want, and we grumble 
And we cry out when he doesn't perform as our genie in a lamp. And sadly, this same attitude exists in the church. And the glory of the gospel is that God welcomes us into his presence because of the grace of Jesus. We abuse the gospel when we think that God is obliged to receive us. Instead, we need to remember that the gate to God's presence is guarded by two mountains of bronze and none of his enemies will ever get through. And left to ourselves, you and I were building our own kingdoms. We were enemies of God. And God had to send someone out from between that, those mountains, from that gate, to come and rescue us, to defeat us first, and then to endear us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He left heaven, he came to earth, and he lived this perfect life. He glorified God. And then what did he do? He went to a cross in the place of sinners. He went to the cross in the place of enemies. He went to the cross in the place of all those who were so busy building our own kingdom that we don't even have time to look up. And when Jesus was on that cross, and he, when he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken because he was standing in the place of those who have forsaken God, as Deuteronomy 28 tells us. The sky above Jesus became bronze, and his prayer bounced off of an impenetrable shield and right back down to heaven where it laid dead. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth became as iron as it just rejected him completely. And he thirsted on the cross because water had turned to powder for him. And he did that to absorb the curse in himself so that all who trust in him would be freed. We get the grace of Jesus, and if we forget the grace of Jesus, and if we just kind of go into this mode of, God's obliged to me, and I'm entitled, and we just, we don't understand the gospel. You don't understand Christianity. We cannot cheapen what Jesus did for us by imagining that we just do our thing, and God's obliged to us. The gospel won't amaze you as long as you feel entitled uh, to it, and it won't be good news to you as long as you think that God's obliged to receive you, but instead, when you recognize, no, God's obliged to hold me accountable uh, for all of the ways that I've contributed to this world's brokenness instead of seeking his kingdom and his will on earth. Jesus has invited us in, taken our accountability on himself. He took our sin on himself and justified us and brought us back into the presence of God. And for all who will raise the white flag and join him joyfully on his procession, we can go into the presence of God because of Jesus. Hebrews tells us there remains a rest, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Um, God's activity on earth is, as I said, designed to bring about rest and, and restoration. Uh, and, and for the creation that groans, the gospel says God is just as impatient and much, much more to see wholeness and healing come. And so our job here, uh, as we wait for that day, is to start conforming our attitudes and our activity to match with God's activity. Are my purposes aligned with his 
purposes? Am I living my life in such a way that I am designing my words and my actions um, to bring about a sense of rest to the people around me? Am I a participant in his plan or am I resistant to his plan? So just a few things to Rest in his plan, even when it's confusing, even when it's painful. If you have to lament, then lament, but trust the one who is working out all things, even the bad things, for the good of those who love him. Uh, Second, participate in his plan and wake up in the morning and determine, I want his kingdom to come, not mine. I want the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self. And I want my activity to align with that. Third thing, you can point people to that plan and remind folks that they can experience that same rest through Jesus. Pray for that, point people to that, and then long for that. Every time you and I turn this infernal thing off... set it down, or just walk away from it, walk away from the screens, walk away from the noise, and we go and we open this book, or we just close our eyes, and we pray, and we listen for God's voice, and we find our rest in Him, we are anticipating that day. Every time you do what you're doing right now, and you come and you enter into a foretaste of that Sabbath rest, that is coming for his people. You are living lives that demonstrate to the world we're not satisfied with how things are. That God has a plan. He's accomplishing his plans. And there will be rest in the White House. And there will be rest in the Kremlin. And there will be rest in Syria. And there will be rest in North Korea. And there will be rest in your heart. And there will be rest in your work. And there will be rest in your family. And are you trusting Him to bring it about? That's what you preach to yourself and to the world every time we rest in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for loving us and for showing us a Savior who is strong and good and powerful, showing us our vulnerability, our our weakness, our inability to save ourselves or to, to, to enter your access. Lord, thank you for loving us enough, even when we were your enemies, to pursue us, to conquer us in love, to raise us to new life in Jesus who took our sins on himself and left them in a tomb. Lord, thank you for making us a new creation. We pray that we would long more and more for your kingdom, your plans, and your purposes, that we would rest in your means and trust you even when life is hard. May you get glory in that waiting. May you get glory in our impatience. And may you get glory in our worship. In Jesus' name we pray.